Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, we desire to be ready and willing to follow you, to serve you, to obey you. Father, make us now ready and willing to receive the truth of your word. May it change us. May we become more and more like your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. Today, as I mentioned, is number 17 in our series from the book of Acts. Our look at all that Jesus continued to do and teach now by the Holy Spirit in the church founded by him through the apostles. Well, a few years ago, uh, Virginia Tech University in Blacksburg um, put out a study And the study dealt with drivers who are distracted when they are driving. They found in their study that drivers who sent text messages while driving were 23 times, did you hear that? 23 times more likely to be involved in an accident than those who did not text while driving. I guess those signs that don't text and drive, stay alive, uh, have some, some uh, studies behind it. In other words, the study is saying what, what's obvious, texting while driving is a major distraction to driving, and it's not just a distraction, wow, it's dangerous, it's dangerous to the point of being deadly. Well, today we're going to take a look at a potential distraction that the apostles faced in the days of the early church that if it not been dealt with properly, could have been proven to be quite the danger to the church. In fact, if ignored, not dealt with properly, this distraction could have indeed turned deadly. Distraction? A danger? Deadly? Is this a joke? Or at least an overstatement? Well, let's consider the threats that the church faced in these early days. We've already seen Satan attempts to overcome the church from the outside by persecution, by force. And then on the inside, by corruption, hypocrisy, as we saw in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, The enemy of God's people, the enemy of the church was attempting to distract the apostles from their primary calling of praying and preaching. And therefore, had they been distracted, the church would be greatly vulnerable in particular to false teaching. Join with me as I read the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As we've been seeing, the growth of the church provoked both external opposition and internal strength. And in our text today, we'll identify a problem that was found and acknowledged. We'll examine the solution that was proposed, and then we'll consider the vital principle that was illustrated in this account in the life of the early church. First, the problem. The problem that was found and acknowledged. We heard that a complaint arose. A complaint arose. A complaint arose because of a disparity in the distribution of material support to the poor, in particular, widows. As you recall, these are the early days of the church, and so Jewish religion and culture is carrying over into the church. And it was already in God's word, we read in Deuteronomy, that the widow was to be cared for. And thus far, we've seen in Acts that the church is united in their care. They're, they're giving to those in need. And the apostles, the apostles are busy handling matters, everything, preaching, teaching, ensuring that the, uh, no one had any need, that uh, resources and support was distributed. And yet the church is beginning as it grows to become multi-ethnic. You see Jews that were Hellenist, that were Greek-speaking, and Jews that were uh, Hebrews, that were speaking Aramaic or, or maybe Hebrew. The church, even in the beginning days, is multi-ethnic, is, is multicultural. The church in Jerusalem, of course, are many cultures and languages. Remember Pentecost. In Jerusalem were, were Jews from all over that had been back to Jerusalem. Now, the Hellenists lived outside of Jerusalem. They, they spoke Greek. They most likely used the um, Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And yet, the church in Jerusalem is being made up of both Hellenist and Hebrews. Now, there's a complaint about this neglect of the Hellenistic widows. And it's, it's not a deliberate oversight, but it's a rather a matter of poor administration. However, if this was left unaddressed, this discontent, this frustration would, could degenerate into distrust. Distrust of who? Distrust of the apostles. Indeed, the intense activity following their trial of preaching the word of God day and night, may have focused the apostles more on preaching and teaching than on distributing food and other resources. 
Now, this complaint represented a problem. And problems, children, when you have a problem, what do you look for? You, you look to solve that problem. And this problem is going to demand a solution. I remember in the Navy, I used to um, have to go to my boss and I would be eager to present him a problem. And uh, he would often say, well, what's your solution? And I soon learned that when I presented the problem, I needed to present the solution right there with it. And you see, as we go further, the solution will be found. Notice that the apostles did not focus their attention on a complaining attitude. They didn't dismiss the Greek-speaking Christians as somehow just malcontents. And they didn't talk about some kind of priority of the spiritual over the material. The, disciples, excuse me, the apostles, they didn't become defensive. They didn't assign blame. Rather, they acknowledged that this situation was a legitimate problem. It was a problem, and therefore, a genuine solution to the problem needed to be found. Well, what was the best way? Well, let's look now at verses 2 through 6 on the solution that was proposed. Um, first of all, I want us to notice the apostles' attitude. Again, they recognized the problem as serious, and they addressed it promptly. They took a non-defensive, compassionate response to the criticism of their leadership. What an example. I mean, the apostles weren't superhuman. They could only do so much. And in their service, some things weren't getting done. And as you heard from the reading, they did not impose a solution, but rather they proposed a solution. They called a congregational meeting where they first spoke about their calling. Notice in verse 2, they state their calling negatively. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's, it's not right. It's not appropriate. It's not desirable. It, it's not pleasing to God because we have been called to preach and teach. But in verse 4, we see their, their calling stated positively. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. In other words, they are aware of their calling from Jesus. They had observed Jesus both in prayer and in preaching. And they knew their calling. If you haven't figured this out already, the solution was not just to work harder. The temptation would be for the apostles just to not sleep, but to preach and teach and to serve tables, to, to distribute food, to distribute funds. Now, what is this duty of serving tables? Well, as I just mentioned, it's this distribution of food that's being collected, distribution of funds that are being collected. And they, they make a proposal. They say, choose seven men. And as we will see, these men will be servants and theologians. Men of good repute that have a good reputation, that are known for their godly character. Men who are full of the spirit and wisdom. That is the Holy Spirit. Who are growing in grace and obedience. Who have knowledge and know how to put that knowledge into practice. And they speak of this duty. This duty to serve tables. And we see 
already the word diakono coming about, which we get our word deacon. Now the apostles set out the qualifications, but notice they did not select the men. The church did that. Men were selected not on the basis of popularity, but rather on the basis of spiritual maturity. Here we see the, the, the beginnings of kind of a division of labor in church leadership, a division of responsibility, a plurality of leadership undergirded by the spiritual qualifications. Now this proposed solution, notice, was implemented. And the, the results, everyone was pleased. In verse 5, we see the church was pleased. They nominated and they chose seven men. Notice, all with Greek-sounding names. Not only were the uh, apostles, excuse me, the church pleased, but the apostles were pleased as well. And they appointed these seven men with prayer and the laying on of hands. In other words, they publicly recognized God's call on those men's lives, as well as made sure that they had a clear understanding of the task. And then in verse 7, we see God himself was pleased. The word of God increased. The number of disciples increased. Many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now before we move on, again, let's see what is going on. A problem was identified. A problem was acknowledged. A solution was proposed and agreed upon. And before we move on, think with me about what solutions were not entertained, were not put into practice. The complainers were not thrown out. Interesting, right? There was a complaint, and yet the complainers weren't thrown out. The apostles didn't shun the difficult people. The congregation didn't outvote the dissenters. The purest among them didn't leave. The apostles didn't just work harder. Now many scholars and theologians see this as the beginning of what we now know as a diaconal ministry. Even though the office deacon is not yet named, I will take Paul in some of his letters. But here you see, as it were, a forerunner of the deacon. And you see the initial stages of what later could be seen as Presbyterian church government, election by the congregation, ordination by the presbytery, or ordination by the session. There's a general distinction being expressed here between the word ministry of the elder and the mercy ministry or the deed ministry of the deacon. So there was a problem. It was addressed. A solution was proposed and agreed upon. Well, now let's consider the principle that I believe Luke is illustrating in this account. The vital principle that is illustrated that's of great importance to the church today. And that's this. God calls his people to ministry. He calls different people to different ministries. And that those called to prayer and the ministry of the word must not allow themselves to be distracted from their God-given priorities. You see, both the work of the 12 apostles and the work of the seven table servers are together alike both called diakonia in verses 1 and 4. 
Both the ministry of the word or pastoral work and the ministry of tables or social work are ways of serving God and his people. Both require people who are spiritual. And that's what we saw when we looked at what church government, how Jesus Christ runs his church, what church government is and why it matters. The elder and the deacon are both to be spiritual men. Full of the Holy Spirit wisdom, the elders are to be the um, shepherds of the church and the deacons are to be the servants of the church. And together they display the manifold ministry of Jesus in word and deed. Both teaching and service are dignified ministries. It's teaching and service laboring side by side. It's word and deed standing together. It's one body, and we see this, one body, but many members. Look back with me to Romans 12 that we heard read earlier. Romans 12, beginning in verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And that's what we see in Acts 6. Different ministries, different men using them. And if you turn over to 1 Corinthians 12, beginning also in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And that's what we see, the beginning of the body working together. A beautiful expression of the transforming work of Jesus. You see, the church in general, and our church in particular, is to have a blend and a balance of word and deed or word and mercy ministries. Because here at Grace and Peace, of course, we are called to declare the truth of God. But we're also declared to demonstrate the truth of God. We see that through His changing of our lives. We see that in our love for one another. Indeed, Jesus said that they'll know that you're my disciples because of your love for one another. The church needs leadership in both word ministry and deed ministry. Both are essential. Both are necessary. Again, the fullness of the ministry of Jesus is seen through the work of the elder and the deacon as they lead and care for the church. So here we are in Acts, and we've already seen high drama, haven't we? We've seen the apostles in prison, but released from prison. We've seen them beaten. We've seen the, the day of Pentecost, high drama. And what do we see in Acts chapter 6? We see administration. A matter of the administration of mercy. And this is important enough for Luke to include. Because you see, had this not been dealt with properly, the unity that they had might not have been able to be maintained. Because distractions, both real and potential, 
if they're not acknowledged, if they're not addressed, can be dangerous to the point of being deadly. The apostles recognized that they were faced with being distracted from their calling to pray and to preach and to teach. It was for them and it remains for us all a matter of calling. Because all churches are called to worship God, to display His glory, to gather and grow His people. We have a calling. Those of you that were with us in April for our vision dinner, remember the the calling to worship God, the calling to welcome one another, and the calling to witness to the world. So let's ask us this question. Are we being distracted? In our daily activities, are we somehow distracted from worship, from welcome, from witness? Here we see, in one sense, the working out of loving God and loving neighbor. We heard in our call to our confession of sin that Jesus said, all of the law is summed up in this. Love God and love neighbor. And we see it. And there was unity preserved. Well, if you ask yourself honestly the question, are you distracted? If you're like me, the answer would be yes. So is there hope for those of us who are distracted? Are there, is there hope For us who were distracted by politics today, sports today, is there hope for us in being distracted by the desire to to keep up, to get ahead? Is there hope for those of us distracted by the trivial? Well, my friends, I have good news. Because hope is found in the gospel, the good news that God has done for us, what we could not do, what we could never do for ourselves. Because you see, in the gospel, our one essential problem has been identified and it's been solved. It's been solved by the only one who was never distracted in his mission. The one who was always constrained by the call of his father to live a life of obedience for his people and to die an atoning, sacrificial death for the sins of his people. My friends, the gospel is good news for the distracted among us. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this incident in the life of the early church for your people. Father, we've seen the high drama of Acts, and here we see an administrative matter. And yet it's important. Father, help us to see that this kind of ministry matters. Yes, the word matters. Yes, prayer matters. Yes, teaching matters. But so does caring for widows. In fact, we know in your word that true religion is defined in caring for orphans and widows. 
Oh, Father, may we be a church that in so many ways presents the fullness of the ministry of Jesus in the ministry of the word and in the ministry of the table, in shepherding and in service. Father, we thank you that Jesus was never distracted, that when his disciples complained and brought a complaint to him, he wasn't distracted, but fulfilled his calling. May that be true for us as well, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.